Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome grace and peace to you. Verses 5 through 19. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And What will the sign be that they're about to take place? And he replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. And then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. This is the gospel of our Lord. Before I offer my reflection on this text, I'd like to uh, lead us in a practice of presence where we can show up in this moment to uh, how we're really thinking, how we're really feeling, um, and, and thereby like connect with God in the place where we really are. So if, uh, if you come into this room with lots of faith or lots of doubt, it doesn't matter. Just bring your full self to this moment, and let's open ourselves to God uh, and to each other in the presence of God.
God, our hearts are open to you this morning as best as we know how. Some of us feel wide open. Uh, some of us, it's as if the, uh, the dial of our heart is just barely able to, to, to let in a ray of light. And, but we're all here, and we're all seeking to be open. Um, so give us the grace that we need this morning to experience and receive uh, what you would give us through this gospel reading, through uh, the reflections that I offer this morning, and through the work of the Spirit in our imaginations and our minds and our hearts, connecting dots that matter for our lives. Uh, give us that grace, we pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. So there are, there are often times of upheaval that happen in our lives individually and that happen to us collectively that leave us asking hard questions and leave us seeking to find our bearings. Um, a couple of years ago, there seemed to be in my own life a lot of uh, pressures, pressures that were uh, coming in from different angles. Uh, we were in the midst of an unexpected transition as a church where we went from a family of neighborhood churches uh, to a process where a decision was made for us to decentralize. And while I'm so grateful on the other side of that for that decentralization and for the future that uh, we have in front of us, at the time it, it came as a, uh, a shock. It came as uh, unexpected. It, it sort of knocked the breath out of me. And it happened to be Ash Wednesday, and we held an Ash Wednesday service here. And I was uh, worshiping. I was sitting next to Guy Wasco, who's the pastor of... Uh, uh, now sanctuary in the East Village, and uh, Guy and I were sitting next to each other, and we had just experienced this news together, and, uh, and David was leading a, a song, and uh, no offense to David, I don't usually cry during, during the songs, it's just not usually who I am, um, but part of who I am is that tears unexpectedly find me in moments of uh, where I, I usually am not counting on them. And in the middle of the song, uh, I just started weeping. I couldn't control it. I'm like wiping my face. I remember seeing the Fitz and Myers, and I was like, oh my gosh, they think I'm losing it right now. Um, and I was just, just weeping in God's presence and in the presence of my community, and nobody even knew why. <laughs> uh, right around that time, I found out my dad had cancer and was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, it was really scary at the beginning. Um, he's through it on the other side. He's in remission. He's, he's still struggling, but he's, he's doing okay. He's stable. Um, but it was really scary. I thought I could lose my dad. Um, also around that time, we had the, the terrorist uh, attack here. And I experienced that firsthand. I was scared for my kids. My kids experienced it. And uh, there were a series of moments after that where I just had these moments of panic, listening to podcasts, hearing B-roll audio of gunfire, and just like whipping my iPods out. iPods? AirPods? No. Airbuds? What are they called? <laughs> Earbuds? Air something. Okay. <laughs> Apple definitely pays me for these, uh, these moments. But I'm walking through the Oculus, and I ripped my, my headphones out, and I was just looking for the source of the gunfire, and it was just my podcast. Um, one day in my office, a lot of these things were coming to a head, and uh, I was working. It was kind of a long day, pushing through some stuff, and I've shared this before, but uh, I had uh, what I realized was a panic attack. 
I uh, went to eat something, and as I'm like scarfing down some food as quickly as I can to get back to, to the office, um, I start experiencing pain in my, in my arm, and I'm like, which arm is the right arm to worry about? Google it, don't ever do that. As soon as I Googled it, I saw the, the list of, uh, of you know, symptoms for a heart attack and began manifesting all those symptoms. So I uh, went to, uh, called my wife, said I'm coming home, went to the drugstore uh, to get my blood pressure taken because I thought I need a metric, I need something like objective that I can look at that will make me realize everything's okay. So I go to the Dwayne Reed in my building and I say, hey, I want my blood pressure taken. Uh, the technician says, fine, I'll meet you over in this back room, and they let, you know, wrap the thing around my arm, and as soon as she gets the reading, she goes, oh, my God, which is not what I was looking for, um, far short of the objectivity I was seeking, and uh, she's like, you need to go to urgent care right now, so I did, and, and it turns out I realized I, was, I was, had a panic attack, and this was my body telling me that I was in the midst of upheaval, and it was upheaval that I was disconnected from, that I was not processing. Um, there was a moment um, in that time period where uh, we were doing some morning prayer and uh, some men from our church would gather and we would pray, pray for each other. And uh, again, unexpected, I just immediately just broke down crying, couldn't even pray a word and uh, in, the, in the midst of my friends. And so all these things were, were hitting me in this moment of life. And uh, it was my body's way of telling me something more important was going on that I wasn't acknowledging. And these are moments of upheaval where the imagination is hungry for a kind of imagery that gives it meaning. And that's what apocalyptic literature is all about. Apocalyptic literature, which is what we have here in Jesus, is a kind of, it's a way of talking about the world, a way of presenting uh, reality that sweeps the imagination in the midst of upheaval. Only apocalyptic isn't just aimed at your own personal crisis. It's aimed at collective crisis. It's, it's aimed at those fissures in world history where it feels like there's a big shift happening or a big transition happening and we're grasping for ways to make sense of it. I watched a, a documentary last night about Star Wars and the creation of Star Wars and how, uh, well, with the unveiling of Disney Plus, yes, I'm getting paid by them as well. Um, <clears throat> they, uh, th there's now available all of the, the Star Wars content and uh, the documentary was a part of it. And what I was struck by in watching that documentary was the way that Star Wars could not have been possible were it not created and released and the coming together of so many factors in that cultural moment. You were on the other side of Nixon, uh, you were on the other side of the Vietnam War, people were wondering what do we do with this, there was no proven mark market for successful space mythology, um, and there was so much resistance in, the, in the, you know, the possibility of making a film like that. But once it was finally released, it was met with such surprising reaction and attachment and enthusiasm because the moment was ripe for a sweeping mythology that could help people feel at the same time removed from their reality and also re-engaged with their reality. 
And that is the power of apocalyptic. Apocalyptic gives us a sort of sweeping set of images, a sweeping point of view that lifts us beyond our reality in order to see our reality with new eyes. Apocalyptic or apocalypse simply means unveiling. It's as if through this way of talking, through this way of writing, you are opening the curtains to something that has been very difficult to see up to this point. It's unveiling. Um, apocalypse is a sort of interpretive strategy for historical crisis. It, wants to, it helps us sweep away fatalism when we're just like, not sure what to do with it, or maybe disconnected from it, like I was disconnected from my own personal pain. And so we, uh, this sense of calcification sets in, the sense of um, cynicism or fatalism sets in. And apocalypse gives us fresh hope. It helps us reconnect with the pain that we're actually feeling, and it gives us fresh eyes for the moment. And so it seems sometimes to take disaster and help us face it with uh, sobriety and also discover the hope that emerges. But what's being unveiled? In apocalypse, especially in the Bible. You see it in uh, the Hebrew Bible with Daniel and the prophets. You see it here in Jesus, and certainly most famously, you see it in the book of Revelation. What is this literature trying to unveil? Gil Bailey, who's a New Testament commentator, says the following, uh, and I, I quote him at length because it, it's too good not to. Um, so, so track with me here. He says, the word apocalypse means unveiling. What then is veiled? the unveiling of which can have apocalyptic consequences. The answer is violence. Veiled violence is violence whose religious and historic justifications still provide it with an aura of respectability and give it a moral or religious monopoly over unofficial violence whose claim to official status it preempts. Unveiled violence is apocalyptic violence precisely because once shorn of its religious and historical justifications, it cannot sufficiently distinguish itself from counterviolence it opposes. And without benefit of religious and cultural privilege, violence simply does what unveiled violence always does. It incites more violence. And in these situations, the scope of violence grows while the ability of its perpetrators to reclaim that religious or that moral privilege diminishes, the reciprocities of violence and counterviolence threaten to spin completely out of control." End quote. Now that's a mouthful. What is he getting at here? Apocalyptic is, is taking the curtain off of this process by which we take our violence and try to make it respectable. We do this with religious narratives. We do this with cultural narratives, nationalist narratives. We have stories we tell ourselves about our violence that gives us a sense of moral high ground. And when that is unveiled and perhaps shown to be ineffective or an illusion, um, then we're left going, okay, now what? And so the consistent thread of violence that the Hebrew prophets dealt with was empire. They dealt with Babylon. They dealt with the Assyrians. And all of this apocalyptic way of writing and talking always emerged under the thumb of that kind of power and violence. Here again, under the Roman Empire, it's emerging again. Jesus is talking about these cataclysmic sort of uh, threshold moments in history through this beautiful 
imaginative way of talking. And certainly the book of Revelation is doing the same. But the consistent thread of Revelation is the shape that violence takes. I want you to consider violence as panic. Violence as a kind of panic to our world. I mean, I had a panic to the, the convulsion of my own life, but collectively we often panic. We panic when we are f confronted with threats, when we're confronted with things we don't understand or confusion, and we look to get our bearings, and, and in, in our panic, we find a solution, and that solution is almost always violent. Now, this has taken different forms over time. In Jesus' words, verse, verse 10 and verse 21, he gives us snapshots of the shape violence can take. Verse 10, he says, nation will rise against nation. Verse 21, he says, for these are the days of vengeance. Every human solution to crisis and violence is a kind of panic. But where are we now? You know, Jesus sort of cast this vision. He's saying, you know, we've had a way of dealing with violence, whether it was through, you know, internally within our own tribes of, you know, finding someone who's to blame and casting them out or creating sacrificial systems where we can make sense of our, of our life by pushing things out or to the side. Um, but we all of a sudden now find like this, this solidarity of going nation against nation. And he predicts that this will only increase over time. And I think certainly we've seen that over world history where violence begins to uh, solidify around national identity and then those nations come against each other with their own narratives, with their own uh, ways of seeing the world. And now on the other side of World War I and on the other side of World War II and on the other side of 9-11, and the war on terror, so to speak. We are at a point where this solution of nation against nation as the solution to our internal uh, squabbles is no longer viable. It, it, it has lost some of its um, power, it's lost some of its gusto, and it is no longer capturing the imagination like it once did. Where are we now? If sacred violence took the form of state violence, nation against nation, what violence is it taking? What shape is it taking now? Well, one of the, one of the ideas that people are writing about these days is this idea of, um, and this is the work of the, the fruit of the gospel in some ways, is the, the work of victim protection. Uh, Gil Bailey on Modern Panic is victim defense, writes this. One of the ways of panicking is to identify with the latest victim and then reconstitute the whole sacrificial system in defense of that victim. Now we know who the victim is and where the righteous violence really ought to go. And so we crank up some more righteous violence, we aim it at the latest victimizers, and we start the whole process over again. That's not to say that we shouldn't run to the aid of the victim, but not in such a way that we end up regenerating the process. An important part of being uh, uh, an apocalyptic being is that we don't get caught up in it again. Now come back to Jesus for a moment. Jesus' tone throughout all of these forecasts and these talks of sweeping conflict that goes all the way to the, the heavenly beings, so to speak. Jesus' posture is calm down. Be poised. Stand firm. Don't be anxious. Don't be surprised. 
There's a, a sense in which Jesus is calling people to a stable center in the midst of all the upheaval. And one of the things that we see emerging in Jesus' response to the conflict of his time, which was truly the, the threat of the temple. I mean, the, the uh, people around the disciples are talking about the stones and how beautiful they are. And this is the occasion where Jesus says, um, hey, let me just share with you, don't be swept up by the spectacle of the temple. And by the way, we do this. We get swept up with all kinds of spectacle in the face of our own anxiety. Like we're worried about our world, we're worried about where our world's headed, and, uh, and we just get swept up in spectacle. It might be the spectacle of uh, nationalism, it might be the spectacle of entertainment, it might be the spectacle of military triumph, it might be the spectacle of technological advance. But whatever that might be, we get swept up with these spectacles and we're like, oh wow, and they only serve as distractions. So Jesus is trying to jar us, to, to snap us out of those distractions and the spectacles that we attach to so that we can see reality for what it really is. And the cross unveils, which is the word for apocalypse, that in the end, there's only one cure for this. There's only one cure for all these human instincts to solve our problems, all these human instincts to take control of our reality. And it's a spirituality of consent. What we see Jesus' invitations here is a spirituality of consent. Consider these, these invitations. In verse 19, stand firm and you will win life. Stand firm and you will win life. I like that. I, the translation, it could, could also be you will gain your soul. But I kind of like you will win life. Um, verse 28 says this, stand up and lift up your heads. When stuff goes down, we have to realize that only an apocalyptic imagination can realize, what only an apocalyptic imagination can realize. And that is, what's actually happening in these moments of upheaval is that God's dream, that God's kingdom, is breaking in on the human constructs that are designed to keep it out. I'm going to say that again. An apocalyptic imagination is able to see that when stuff goes down, God's dream is breaking in on the human constructs that are designed to keep it out. And if you can see that, you won't panic. You'll be able to take advantage of the call to witness and to participate in God's dream here and now. But to bear witness to this unfolding of God's dream in history, we have to be committed to endurance. In the words of verse 28, we have to stand before the human one. Jesus, the Christ, who's also the crucified one. And we lift up our heads. And what our eyes will meet will inspire an endurance that's more than just gritting one's teeth in the face of pain or toughing something out. These are the sort of pantomimes of control. Rather, this is an endurance of consent, of an open waiting, of a receptivity. Um, Chris Hewitts writes, consent is more than acquiescence or agreement. Consent is active agreement. The agreement to give of yourself, not at your expense or in the way that diminishes you, but rather as an offering of love. Consent is saying yes to more of everything that helps facilitate your coming home and your liberation. End quote. That's the gospel. 
The word endurance, hypomene, is more than just patience. Uh, Simone Weil, in her book, Waiting for God, says, quote, the attitude that brings about salvation is not like any form of activity. The Greek word which expresses it is, means waiting or attentive, and it's a faithful immobility that lasts indefinitely and cannot be shaken. Luke says, by your endurance, you will win life. The implication is that the alternative to this posture of consent, the spirituality of consent, is a spirituality of control that takes the shape of vengeance, that takes the shape of retaliation, that takes the, the shape of reciprocating when one is hurt, that takes the shape of scandal or getting caught up in the momentum of that. If by consent we gain ourselves, uh, gain our souls by living as if this moment is ultimate and getting caught up in its particular form of violence, violence we run the risk of losing our souls. Chris goes on to say, fundamentally, love is at the heart of our faith tradition. God is love. And in consenting to silence, we allow love to wash over us, inviting us into a new we, a new kind of community that affirms the divine imprint within all humanity and contributes to building the kind of world that we all want to live in. We all have our temptations in the face of upheaval. We have temptations when things feel like they're spinning out of control in our lives or in our world. Some of us uh, need to learn how to engage because our instinct, our temptation is to run. We fly away when we face pain. Some of us need to rest because our instinct is to toil. It's to just constantly be tweaking and working and we're busy trying to solve the problem and we need to learn what it means to rest. Some of us need to consent because our instinct is to deny and to rage against reality. I heard this the other day um, in a podcast, a podcast called Typology, which is our friend Ian Morgan Cron's uh, podcast about the Enneagram. And he was uh, interviewing, who was he interviewing? I've, I've, I'm losing it right now. Al something. Okay, so Al said, <laughs> the flight from sorrow leads to the loss of hope. The flight from sorrow leads to the loss of hope. And he's speaking as a therapist, noting that so much of uh, our problems with addiction, so much of our problems with uh, sort of non-chemical forms of depression or anxiety, that these are results of an avoidance, a disengagement, a refusal to see and engage reality for what it really is. And ironically, in our escape from reality, we lose hope. In our attempt to avoid something bad, we land in a place of lethargy. And only when we can face our sorrows and weep yeah, there was something that released in me when I wept in the presence of my friends. There was something that sort of released in me when I was able to weep in the context of my community as we sang. And later, my, you know, my wife would make possible, when she saw these things happening in my life, she, she made possible for me to get away and be alone because part of my spirituality of consent is solitude, is to get away from all the things that blur my, my vision and sort of dull the edge of my sense of purpose in life, and to be with God, and to just be still and silent and present and attentive and anchor myself once again in God's love. 
We need these spiritual postures in our lives when we are faced with the temptation to take control. I'm reminded of a, a, a 19th century satirical novel. It was called uh, Flatland, a Romance of Many Dimensions. And in it, you basically have a civilization of two dimensions. And one of the main characters is Mr. Square. And one day, Mr. Square, who's a man of two dimensions, is visited by Mr. Sphere, who's a man of three dimensions. And Square regards Sphere with a bit of apprehensiveness. Sphere speaks to Square about a world of three dimensions, a world that's not flat. But Square is unconvinced. Living in a two-dimensional world, it's impossible for him to imagine another dimension. And eventually, Sphere is persecuted and driven out by the outraged flatlanders. And when it comes to Jesus and what Jesus unveils about us and our responses to our world, uh, we've been unable to believe, for instance, that love and forgiveness is a better weapon against evil than brute force. God's power of love is a three-dimensional uh, approach to our two-dimensional sacrificial instincts. We always look for something or someone to sacrifice in the face of our pain. And these have evolved with history and have taken many shapes, and I think we're wrestling with what shape that's taking now. But he comes again with a word of love and a word of forgiveness that promises to the power uh, to, it, it promises and points us, even this table, points us to a power that will finally take care of all that's evil in this world. And it will not be easy. Jesus is so clear about this. I love that about this apocalyptic way of talking. Jesus is like, this will be hard. Like, you're going to experience betrayal and resistance and persecution. People won't understand it. They won't like it. They will reject it. And therefore, they will reject you. Jesus is very clear, this will not be easy. But it's the only way. He comes to us again today to lead the way. I've seen the future, he would tell us. And the future is not some cold grave. It's not some hard, lifeless tomb. The future is the glorious triumph of the love of God. And because Jesus' followers won't be pointing toward others with an accusing finger, but rather will be pointing toward God who loves all and doesn't wish for anyone to be sacrificed. They will be hated by everyone who finds their identity in their bearings by finding someone to hate to make themselves feel righteous or good or pure or clean. A culture built on division and hatred will especially hate Jesus' followers because Jesus' followers give witness to the truth when they're actually following Jesus, let me just say that, that all are of value and none are expendable. After all of this, Jesus still leaves a word of comfort. He assures us that still, not a hair on your heads will be lost. He tells us that we will make it through this process whole. When we embrace the spirituality of consent in the midst of upheaval, when we believe into God and allow the love of God to come into us, something magical can happen. And it's the only answer to our problems.
It's the belief that love and forgiveness will triumph. And that's where apocalyptic language and literature always leads us. And more than that, Jesus would say, by holding fast, you will win life. Dear friends, we're in the process of gaining our lives in the midst of this upheaval. And so I invite you to a moment of pause and a moment of reflection, just 30 seconds to consider where your temptations are, 30 seconds to consider what consent could look like for you this week, 30 seconds to consider how the Spirit of God is inviting you into this gospel of love which Jesus preached and lived and told us is the only answer. Let's take 30 seconds to reflect on how God is speaking to us. God, we, uh, together, we cry out, we need help. We need this sort of apocalyptic imagination that would help us um, feel and believe that what we're experiencing right now is not ultimate, that somehow we can detach from it and see it afresh, see that something is breaking into our world, something is breaking into our lives, and give us the courage and the grace and the serenity to receive it, to consent to it. Help us to embrace this posture, even as we pivot into the Advent season of endurance, of waiting, of patience, of a receiving what you are giving. And give us fresh imagination for what love could look like embodied in our families, in our work, in our city, and in our world. We pray that in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.